Hey, this is Eric, and you're listening to the Story Church Podcast. Our podcast features audio from Sunday mornings at Story Church in Peru, Indiana, a community on the mission of connecting people's story to God's story. If you'd like to connect with us further, check out storyperu.com. Our hope is that today's episode helps you take your next step on your faith journey. I'm calling today Paradoxology, and I might need to tell you at the very beginning, um, we're going to cover a lot of ground fairly fast, uh, and you may need to like buckle up and hang with me because I feel like the payoff is kind of at the end, but we've got to like cover a lot of ground to get there, okay? So it might feel a little different uh, than it typically does around here. In some ways, what I want to share with you today is just something that's kind of on my heart, uh, something that I wrestle with and that I carry and I'm trying to navigate as I follow Jesus. And uh, some of it is stuff that's just core to who we are as a community here at Story, some of the uh, values and postures that we want to hold along the way. But I called the topic paradoxology, and that's a really big word that I just made up altogether. Uh, it, you wouldn't find it anywhere else. It's not actually a real word. It's not found in the dictionary. But within it, uh, the reason we're calling it that is there's these two terms or these two ideas that I want to highlight and hold in contention as it relates to our faith and as it relates to maybe you trying to follow Jesus today. And the first thing uh, in paradoxology is this word paradox. I don't know if you've heard of a paradox before. Maybe uh, you've heard of it in the context of like science or, or theory about how the world works. But essentially, a paradox uh, is two things that seemingly uh, are in contradiction to one another, but they also both exist at the same time. It's, it's two things that it seems like can't possibly both be true, and yet if you look at them individually, they are true. So it's this kind of unsolvable reality, uh, these two things maybe that you can believe in individually, but then when you stack them up together, they seem like they don't work or they contradict themselves. Uh, This shows up a lot in the world of our beliefs, uh, but it also shows up in our experiences. Like I'd be willing to bet if you were honest about your experience, maybe especially as it relates to relationships. You've probably had an experience relationally where you felt something or you experienced something and, and it helped you draw a conclusion about what relationships are like, but then maybe a few years later you had another relationship and you had a different experience that, I mean, you felt that too and you were there for that, but it didn't seem to jive with what you thought before about relationships, and so you had this like paradoxical experience where you had both experiences, both are a part of your story, but it's hard to reconcile them in a coherent or consistent way. That's basically what a paradox is. And one of my favorite things that uh, paradoxes have brought us, or maybe one of my favorite illustrations of paradoxes, happened in an internet meme uh, called the Philosoraptor. Has anybody seen the Philosoraptor? He's this guy, he's this inquisitive looking raptor, and then people put like paradoxes over the top of him. So for example, if anything is possible, is it possible for something to be impossible? I've lost some of you. You're going to think about that the rest of the time, right? Uh, So he goes on. I've got like three of these. Uh, I liked this one. It says, if the zombie apocalypse happens in Vegas, would it stay in Vegas? Because what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, right? Who knows? Uh, We're getting into the holiday season, so I think this is a good one to ponder. If I ask Santa for coal, what does he give me if I'm naughty? It's like a loophole in the system, right? And then this next one, I feel like it's just going to bake all of our noodles for the rest of the time. He says this, if life is unfair to everyone doesn't that make life fair? What? <laughs> right? So that's, that's a paradox. It's like these things that like, wait, how can that possibly exist? And sometimes paradoxes are funny, right? Sometimes we kind of laugh about it, like the biggest one I particularly liked. Uh, but sometimes if we're honest, paradoxes can be frustrating too. Uh, paradoxes can be frustrating uh, even in, in the realm of our lives. Like maybe you've ever had an experience where you failed at something, but eventually that led to your success, 
Right? That seems like a paradox. It seems like failure is the end, but it was actually the thing that brought you to your success later in life, and it's hard to understand. Uh, maybe you've experienced this paradox, that the more choices we have, the harder it is to choose. I'm talking about lunchtime today, right? Like, hey, where do you want to go? The more choices you have, the harder it is to choose along the way. Maybe you've heard somebody say this, that the only certainty is uncertainty. It's like that can't logically be true, but at the same time, it kind of seems kind of true. Or, or maybe that the only constant is change. Right? We say things like that, and it can be frustrating trying to resolve it, especially if you're going through something in your life that feels like a paradox. And paradoxes, I think, are especially difficult for us gathered here as a church as it relates to our faith. Paradoxes are really difficult, which leads me to the second half of paradoxology, which is the idea of the doxology. Just like quick show of hands, does anybody know what I mean by the doxology? Like, okay, some of you guys, yeah. So for me, I grew up uh, in church, and often at the end of our services, we would sing something or kind of recite something known as the doxology. There's different versions of it, uh, but it's basically a sending out uh, message for Jesus followers that would remind them of what's true. Uh, one of the most famous ones is, praise God from whom all blessings flow, praise him all teachers here below. I'm not going to finish it, but if you know it, you know it. Um, fun story. My father-in-law actually made my wife sing that at the dinner table like most nights as they were growing up. So it would be this like awkward moment where like she's ready to eat, but they would all sing, praise God from him all. So to be kind of funny and honor him and give a little nod to him, uh, on our fireplace above our dining table, we've got a print of the doxology up there. So it's always with us at dinner time. But rather than just being a catchy song or a good way to end a service, uh, the doxology, if you actually like drill down on its initial language and the initial meaning behind it. It's two Greek phrases smashed together. It's the word doxa, which means either opinion or glory, because Greek is tricky, uh, but typically people go with glory in this instance. Uh, it's the idea of glory coupled with the suffix logia, which refers to like an oral or a written expression. So a doxology is an expression of praise or an expression of God's glory. It's this way that we remind ourselves of what's true. And so what I want to do with our time together today is I want to take those two things, paradoxes and the tensions that sometimes we feel in life or especially as it relates to faith and living out a life that gives praise to God and offers him glory and couple them together because I'll give you the punchline early today. One thing I hope that you and I can grab together is that paradoxes and tensions are actually a part of a growing faith. That, that paradoxes don't need to go away. It's not a problem if sometimes you felt like faith itself is a paradox. That doesn't mean you're doing it wrong, and, and I hope today that I can help you see that there's actually room for that in the midst of a growing faith. I want to give you permission to embrace tension and paradox in the midst of your faith journey. And then towards the end, uh, I'm going to turn us to a specific paradox that exists right at the heart of how Jesus loved and how he calls us to love as well and how we can carry that well together. So like I said, I've got a lot of ground to cover and I'm going to move pretty fast, so seatbelts on. Uh, because the truth is, I think as it relates to paradoxes and tensions, one reason I wanted to talk about this is we experience a lot of tensions in our life together here at Story. Like, like in the community that we're trying to build, there's a lot of paradoxes around here, and I don't feel like I ever get to talk about it, but I'm supposed to like lead us through it and carry it, and uh, maybe you've never thought about these things, but these are the things sometimes that like keep me up at night, because I'm like, I need to have an answer to it, but it's a paradox. Like for example, uh, around here, we want to be a community that's marked by extending grace to other people, extending God's radical grace to people, but at the same time, I want us to be a community that pursues justice 
that helps make things right and stand up for what's right. But those two things, if you really think them out and if you really try and live them out, sometimes they feel like they're opposing, like it's a paradox. Because uh, extending grace, man, grace is all about this unmerited kindness that we can give to people. This unmerited, unearned kindness and mercy that we can extend. But justice, to really do justice right, isn't just like shouting out what's true or what you think is right, but it requires things like accountability. It, it requires a pursuit of peace that's not just like peace and love, good, like good luck, but actually like pursues righting the wrongs in the world. But that seems like it's opposed to grace. Like how can we be a community that is marked by both grace and peace or grace and justice? It's a tension that I carry. Uh, this next one might make you all a little comfortable and this might be the day that I lose you, but we'll see. Uh, we haven't expressly talked about this, but something you can probably read between the lines and know about me and about our leadership here is we believe that Jesus isn't partisan. In other words, as it relates to like the political world, Jesus isn't a Republican and Jesus isn't a Democrat. Jesus isn't even an American, but that's a different conversation for a different day. Uh, but at the same time, I do believe that Jesus cares deeply about politics if politics is all about how we leverage power and how we treat one another and how we organize our society. So there's this tension because so much of what is crazy and wrong about our culture in this moment is the ways that sometimes we weaponize God for our side and we're so polarized and we're just fighting each other all the time. I believe that Jesus isn't in that partisan fray at all. Like that's not his game to play. He transcends that. But at the same time, if we want to take following Jesus seriously, then we're going to have to navigate politics in a certain way at times along our journey. We've talked about this next one before. Uh, there's this paradox or tension that exists between faith and doubt. And what we've said here before is that like, we actually don't think those things are opposed, but that a growing faith actually makes room for doubt. That, that doubt is a part of growing faith. So if you have questions or if you've had doubts along the way, that doesn't disqualify you from following God. That actually might mean that you're doing it right uh, because you're wrestling with it and you're trying to figure it out. But they seem like they're opposing things. Uh, as it relates to my role, there's some tension that exists or a paradox uh, because I'm called to be pastoral and prophetic. And don't worry, that's not like a weird thing. Uh, when I'm talking about being pastoral, that language actually comes from like the role of a shepherd, somebody who cares for and uh, has compassion and, and walks alongside other people through some of the difficult stuff of life or just offers guidance and direction. And I love getting to be able to do that uh, to people. But at the same time, a part of my role as a pastor is to be prophetic, not like telling the future prophetic, but like challenging prophetic. Like one thing that the prophets did all throughout uh, scripture is they would challenge God's people to live up to their calling. And sometimes that's my role as a pastor as well. And it's this tricky tension to carry because sometimes what's pastoral to one person is prophetic to the next. Like the very same concept or the same idea can be encouraging to one person and can be challenging to the next. And so I have to carry this paradox together. Uh, there's this paradox that exists in our faith that we believe every person was made unique and made in the image of God. And so that means stuff like your background, your family of origin, uh, your gender, your experiences in life, your ethnicity, maybe even your career path that you've chosen. All of those things are a part of who you are. All of those things shape how you experience life. And yet at the same time, we have a faith uh, that as the Apostle Paul says, that in Jesus, there is no Jew or Greek or man or woman or slave or free. So, so it's like we think that Jesus honors those categories or those ways that we define ourselves. He honors those aspects of our story that makes us unique. But at the same time, he calls us to unity that transcends all of that. And it's this paradox that we can't solve. I've got just a couple more, okay? Uh, one thing 
as it relates to how we function together as a church is I think we're really functioning at our best when we treat each other like a spiritual family, right? When we look out for one another just like you would look out for a family member and we accept each other just like you would accept a family member. And then at the same time, we're like a 501c3 nonprofit organization that like has to pay bills and figure out taxes and all that stuff. And so there's a tension in that because how we function as a family sometimes feels different than how we function as an organization. Or maybe in a similar way, the church uh, is really two things at the same time. There's this tension between the church as a movement and the church as an institution. And the thing about movements is movements are the things throughout human history that bring radical change. There's a new movement that teaches us there's maybe something wrong with the way that we're doing things or, or that there's a new idea, a new thing to pursue. The church in its earliest days was certainly a movement. It was this disruptive community that was loving in a new way and showing grace in a new way. Uh, but the thing about movements is movements are rarely good at sustaining the change that they create. Movements are rarely good at sustaining change long-term, and so that's where institutions come in. Because institutions show up, and they basically make it possible for the change that happened in the last movement to stick around and to last. But it's easy for institutions to get stuck and to stop moving and stop moving forward. And so again, there's a paradox or a tension. And uh, I already mentioned this last one, but just because I think maybe seeing these words on the screen in church make us uncomfortable, there's a paradox in our life together here at Story between us being conservative and us being progressive. There's a paradox there. Because believe it or not, there are some aspects of our faith and how we express it here at Story that are extremely conservative. It's probably not a reputation in town, but like, there are some aspects of our faith that are very conservative, and yet we believe God is still on the move and still doing new things as well. So I've said this in a past series, that we want to be a community that holds on to historic faith, the, the faith that's been passed down for thousands of years now. And at the same time, we want to engage with an ever-changing culture. And that doesn't mean we believe every new idea is a good idea, but we want to hold those things in tension. It's a paradox. It's a thing that we hold on to. And these are the things that I wrestle with in my free time. <laughs> Sometimes it's like, man, how do I lead well through that? How are, how are we faithful as, as a church community in the midst of that? But something that I love about all of these paradoxes is there are kingdom problems. They're problems that reveal we're trying to follow Jesus, not just going with the current and not just doing our own thing. And there's a word for what we're navigating together. I've used it a ton uh, throughout the message already. But the word that I think I feel in all of these things is tension. And I don't know about you, but for me, like, tension is one of those words that even reading it, I just kind of feel it. For me, tension always shows up in my neck. So it's like I read it and I'm like, ah, there it is. And uh, man, like, tension feels like something that needs to be resolved, doesn't it? When there's tension in your life, I mean, especially in your relationships or at work, if there's tension, you can feel it, and we all want tension to be resolved. I was thinking about that because for the first time in like a month, I changed my guitar strings yesterday. And uh, the way that guitar strings work is you put the string under tension. You tighten it, and then it gets to the right pitch. And, but as I was sitting there doing it, I've changed guitar strings a million times. But every time, it's getting tighter and tighter, and I feel like it's going to snap. Right? It's going to go because it keeps getting tighter and tighter because the natural thing that we feel as it relates to tension is that it needs to resolve. The natural thing we feel is that tension needs to be resolved. And quick sidebar, there are some tensions we face in life that should be resolved. Right? Like sometimes there's tension in our lives just because we won't do the thing that we know we ought to do. There's tension in our life because we won't have the conversation we know that we need to have or we're just like, comfortable with our bad habits, and we know it's not good, but we just stay in it, and I'm guilty of it too. Those kinds of tensions are not what I'm talking about today. Those kinds of tensions, we just need to get up and do something about them, right, if we're, if we're honest with ourselves. But when it comes to faith, 
what I hope you can see today is that there are some tensions that actually don't need to be resolved. That actually, if we resolve the tension, we lose something as it relates to our faith. And I think a healthier picture of how we can engage uh, with tension in our faith is if you can imagine a tent with me. So my uh, daughter, Eden, has been really randomly fired up suddenly about going camping. I don't know where she got this idea. We're not like big campers. In fact, my brother uh, got me a tent for a wedding gift, and I have opened it one time. Uh, I think it was in my backyard (laughs) just to see, like, does this thing work? And it does. But if you don't know how tents work, uh, modern tents especially, they're all about tension because there are these poles that are quite literally called tension poles that slip into pockets on the side of the tent material, and you pull it over till it's tight into the next pocket, and it's that tension that takes that tent from just being like a sheet of nylon to actually having space where you can do whatever you're gonna do while you're out camping. The whole way that a tent works is the tension creates space, and I think the same thing can be true for us as it relates to our faith. And in fact, I was uh, listening to a podcast this week from a a guy, he's a former pastor, he still kind of preaches from time to time, Uh, but his name is Rob Bell, and he was having this conversation on his podcast about the polarization that we see in our world today, uh, specifically politically, this tension that exists between conservatives and progressives and the fight that we can see everywhere that we turn. And, And he was just highlighting how, like, as it relates to people with a more conservative perspective, often the answer is, like, we just need to go back to the way things were. Like, if we could just get back to the good old days or back to the way that things once were, that that would fix everything. Uh, But often more progressive people or non-conservative people think, no, we got to throw out the way that it all was, and we need to do something new, that it's all broken and it's all messed up. And what he was highlighting in this podcast is basically that both of those things kind of miss the point, that they're trying to resolve a tension that maybe instead we should actually hold. And he made this statement on the podcast. I went back and I listened to it like three times so I could write it down right. Uh, that I think is so revealing. He said, anytime you take a dynamic tension at the heart of human vitality and you ask people to pick one or the other, you're going to have absolute madness. And man, when he said that, it kind of stopped me in my tracks because, I mean, I don't know if you're like me, but I'm like, I see some absolute madness happening in our world right now. (laughs) And I think the reason is because, like, It's not all tensions that this is true about, right? Some tensions we just need to do something about, but the really important tensions don't need to be resolved. We need to learn instead how to hold them. And too many of us buy into the idea that tension needs to be resolved. In fact, uh, I know for a fact that if I wanted to, we could build a really big church right here in Peru if I would just get in the business of resolving all of the tensions as it relates to faith. There are churches that do this all throughout the country that have big budgets and big buildings and it's like big industry for somebody to come up and to put on a microphone and to say, let me solve all of the problems you have about faith, right? Let me give you the simple solution to everything. Here's the three-point message every week, like go and do it. And to be honest, there's moments where it's tempting because it's like, man, we could do some really cool stuff together. But I don't believe that's what's actually at the heart of faith. I don't think that's actually at the heart of what it means to follow Jesus because there's tension and there's paradox just baked into Christian theology. Again, to show you what I mean, uh, Christian theology, like through and through, holds things in tension with one another, like about Jesus. We believe that Jesus is fully human and fully divine at the same time, that he's fully human and fully God. And all along the way, I mean, this conversation has been going on for centuries of debate where people would wrestle through, like, well, what does that really mean? And like, how could he possibly be both things? And the answer is it's a paradox. It's a tension 
that we have to learn how to hold and how to carry. Another one that's so hard to describe is the concept of the Trinity, or that God is one, but he's also three in one. Like God is one, he's unified, but he's also distinct in these three persons. And like trying to even have language to describe it, it fails us. It's confusing that God is like community and unity all at the same time. It's, it's hard to wrap our heads around. As it relates to our faith, we're paradoxes too. Because you can read through scripture, and hopefully you have at some point, and you've bumped into these conflicting ideas about ourselves. Because on the one hand, we're sinners. But at the same time, we're referred to as saints time and time again. Like, you're broken, but you're also made new. And like, how do we hold those two things together? Because if we deny one, we lose out on the full picture of faith. And in fact, the history of Christian heresy, if you've ever like wondered, <laughs> which I know you haven't, but the history of Christian heresy, it really hinges on people trying to resolve tensions or paradoxes that were never meant to be resolved. Like, like some of the early heresy was people saying like, no, like Jesus can't fully be God and fully be man. So we're just going to get rid of one. And that was where people would say, no, no, that's not orthodox belief. Like that's not what we know to be true about Jesus. And so that is the spot where often we would get in trouble is when we would end up with these partial truths that tried to resolve the tensions that are at the heart of faith. And so what I, one thing I want you to see today is that not all paradoxes, not all tensions need to be solved as it relates to our faith. Some of them just need to be held. And there's a theologian uh, who's kind of snarky sometimes, so I like him. He's from the UK. Uh, his name's G.K. Chesterton. And one time in a letter, he talked about this dynamic, and he said it in this way. He said, the church keeps its beliefs side by side like two strong colors, red and white, like the red and white upon the shield of St. George. Again, he's from the UK. He's very proud. But he says, it has always had a healthy hatred of pink. Right? The church holds red and white side by side, but has had a healthy hatred of pink. If you're wearing pink today, he's not talking about your outfit, but rather what he's saying is that like, we don't need to solve paradoxes. We need to create space for them. We need to allow them to exist. Like problems are meant to be solved, but paradoxes are meant to be held. Problems are meant to be solved, but paradoxes are meant to be held. And embracing paradox as a part of faith is so important because it gives us language to try and understand the mystery that is God. It gives us a way to understand our experience and our ability to relate to the God who's at the center of everything, right? The God who, as we sang about, is bigger than we can ever think or ever imagine. And to illustrate that, like, we do this in other areas of our lives all the time, and we're very comfortable with it, having specific language that makes sense in a certain context. Like, if you've ever been in a romantic relationship, or maybe you can imagine one with me, and, you know, you and this person are going out on your date, and uh, it's gone well so far, so you're, like, sitting there, maybe over a candlelit dinner, and, and you're talking, and it feels like that moment is there where you need to, like, express your feelings to him or express your feelings to her, and, and like, you're sitting there, and you lean in, and can you imagine what it would feel like if you leaned across the table, and you looked into his eyes or looked into her eyes, and you said, babe, you set my hypothalamus on overdrive and flood my brain with endorphins. <laughs> yeah, that's the proper response. Like, unless you got a different kind of relationship than I do, which you're welcome here. But like, that's not normally our language for love, is it? And here's the thing, that's true. Like that phrase, that concept, that's pulled right from the science of like attraction and what actually happens in our brain when we're attracted to one another. But that's not how we talk about it because that language doesn't serve love. Right? When we talk about love, we say things like, you complete me. 
and I know that's kind of codependent, but that's a different topic for a different day. Uh, we say things like, you take my breath away, right? It's this flowery, poetic language that serves the setting and serves the moment. And, and so that's what paradox is meant to do for us as it relates to faith. It gives us the space to engage with the mystery that is God. It, it allows us to carry these things that are necessary for us to carry intention and to not resolve it and lose an important piece of it. And so shifting gears a bit, uh, with the rest of our time, what I'd love to do is show you one very important application of making space for paradox in our faith as it relates to Jesus's most important command to us in terms of how we're supposed to live and how we're supposed to treat one another. Because at the very end of his time on earth, Jesus gathered his followers together and he gave them this new command or this new instruction. And he essentially said, hey, if you get everything else wrong that I've said, this is the thing that should describe you. This is the thing that should be true of you if you want to be my follower. This is the thing that should characterize you more than anything else. And here's what he said to his closest followers just before he exited the earth. He said, by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples or my followers if you love one another. And in the same conversation, he actually goes on and he makes it even more specific. He says, people will know that you're my follower if you love other people the way that I love you, that, that people will know you're following Jesus if you do your best to love other people in the same way that God through Christ loves you. And, and this command that Jesus gives, it is amazingly clear, but terrifyingly demanding of our lives if we actually wanna practice it and actually wanna live it out. And I think that's actually kind of the problem or the paradox that shows up along the way because many of us have experienced love in some way. Right? Many of us have a definition or an understanding of what it means to love one another, and I'm sure there's some truth in your definition just like there is in mine, and all of us have experienced love to some extent, but if you open up Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and you read about the accounts of Jesus' life and you see the way that he loved other people, it can be frustrating. It can be confusing. Jesus seems inconsistent at times because there are moments where Jesus confronts people. Right? He, he calls them on the carpet, and then there are moments where he forgives them. There are moments where he seems like the kindest, nicest, most graceful person ever, and then he's flipping tables. Right? It's like, so which of those moments is love? And if he was all love all the time, like how do I know and how do I live that out? There's a bit of a paradox there, and what we're often tempted to do is try and solve the paradox. Right? We're tempted to go one way or the other and to think that like Jesus is just all grace and peace and love all the time, or to think Jesus is like truth and this is how it is and like rise up to the level all the time. And honestly, depending on your personality and your temperament, you probably lean one way or another. But this is why Jesus followers, often it's our lack of comfort with the confusing way that Jesus loves that causes Christians and causes churches to lean to one extreme or the other. Maybe you grew up in a church or you've been around a church that leans towards like a more conservative view. And it's easy for people in that context to become judgmental because they take law and rule and instruction and truth. And if you like go too far in that direction, it can be weaponized and it can suddenly be about how much better you are, who's living up to the standard better than other people, or we're so much better than them because look at how good we're doing at it. But on the other side, like if you've been around maybe a less conservative faith community, it can get kind of mushy right? Like it can be just like grace and love all the time and peace. And then like nobody's ever held accountable and, and people can just kind of do whatever they want. And you can get into some really painful and difficult situations in a community like that too. This tension makes more conservative people feel like we're letting people get away with stuff. And, and it makes 
less conservative people fearful that we're hurting people or, or we're giving them bad feelings or, or, or we're, we're uh, helping people feel bad about themselves. And so John, one of Jesus's first century followers who actually walked with Jesus, followed Jesus as Jesus did his ministry on the earth, uh, eventually when he became an old man, he, he took a moment and he decided to write down his experience of Jesus. We know it as the Gospel of John. Uh, but he's chronicling like what it was like to be around Jesus. And as he reflected on what he saw in, in the way that Jesus loved, he started writing. And at the beginning of his gospel, he basically writes out this poem where he says this. He says, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. This is poetic language again. He says he was with God in the beginning and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and this life was the light of all mankind. That light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I mean, it's this big, powerful view that like, like in Jesus you find God, right? The, the light of the world that has never been overcome by any circumstance. And he goes on, he says, The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world, and he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world didn't recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And yet, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. I often love uh, to highlight in the message translation, uh, Eugene Peterson, who put that translation together, describes that last line and says that uh, the word became flesh and Jesus moved into our neighborhood. Like, like the point is that he drew near to us. He moved in our direction, that, that God put on a human body and showed us what love really looked like in the flesh. And then John, reflecting on all of that dynamic, John, who, who knew Jesus personally, who walked with Jesus on this earth, makes this amazing paradox-filled reflection on who Jesus was and how Jesus loved. He says, we have seen his glory. And when he says we, he means like, real people in the first century have really seen him and been with him. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. And there's the tension, right? Full of grace, full of truth, all of them, all the time. These two things that we feel so tempted to go one direction or the other, right? Depending on your personality, like we lean one way or the other. There's this tension that seems to be there because truth says you're accountable and grace says you're forgiven. Like, like grace says you're fine and truth says you're broken. Grace says it's all going to be okay. And truth says you're going to have to work on it. Right? These things seem like they can't exist. Grace says no matter what, I love you, and truth says you're accountable for your actions. And both of those things exist in our faith. It's this paradox. And again, depending on our temperament, we lean one way or the other, depending on what your parents were like, right? You probably, uh, if you're like a lot of families, you had one parent who was like the truth teller and one parent who was grace and peace and love all the time, right? And so depending on what that experience was like, it probably shaped you and shaped your experience in which way that you lean along the way. Like for me, I want it to be one or the other, depending on the circumstance or the situation that I'm in. I like the verses about truth when I'm telling other people what to do, and I love the verses about grace when I'm reflecting on my own life, right? And isn't that true for all of us? 
We love to leverage truth for others and receive grace for ourselves. But John said, hey, I watched Jesus. And the best way that I can describe it is he was full to the brim of all of it. He was all grace all the time and all truth all the time. And then he said this. John says, and out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. Or in other words, he's reflecting and saying like, man, because of Jesus and because of the way that he loved, we've received grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. And then he says that the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And this paradox, this thing that Jesus somehow held, it's the thing that made him so confusing and so messy and in some ways so unpredictable because everybody wants to lean one way or the other. Everybody wants to be either grace or truth at any given moment. And John says he was all of it. And he brought all of it to bear on every situation and every individual he talked to and every circumstance. He brought all of it. And if you resolve that tension as it relates to your faith and as it relates to the way that you treat other people, you lose something. You lose something of what it means to love like Jesus loved. And we see him do it all throughout his ministry. I'm going to give it to you rapid fire really quick. Uh, Jesus interacts with a woman at the well. It's a famous account. And, and he's talking to her. He's not supposed to be there. It's like the wrong time of day for them to have this encounter. But he's there anyway. So there's kind of a grace thing happening already. And, and then Jesus makes a statement. He says, go get your husband. And, and the woman says, I, I don't have a husband. And he says, I know. You've had five. And the guy you're with now isn't your husband either. Truth. Right? <laughs> like, oh. like, she's being confronted. And, and he throws that out. And and so he, like, reveals one of the deepest, most shameful things about her life, probably. And then he makes this offer to her. And he says, hey, I've just revealed, like, your deepest thirst. Would you like me to give you something that can satisfy that? Grace. Right? It's, it's, all, it's both things all the time. It's truth and it's grace in their fullness. Uh, Jesus goes to a tax collector named Matthew. And all the other guys who already started following Jesus are like, not a tax collector. Right? Because in those days, tax collectors were a special class of sinner. If you ever read through and you see sinners and tax collectors, it's because that's how hated tax collectors were in those days. They were like worse than sinners. And so Matthew, the tax collector, is invited in. And the guys, I'm sure, imagine like, Jesus, aren't you condoning tax collecting by allowing him in to the movement? And Jesus says, no, I'm asking Matthew to follow me. And it's going to get worse. We're going to go to his house. <laughs> like, we're going to hang out with him, and I don't care what it looks like. And eventually he's going to give it up anyway. But it's It's grace even despite the circumstance. Uh, there's a criminal hanging on the cross next to Jesus at the end. And, and the criminal says to Jesus, hey, we're getting what we deserve. And Jesus doesn't argue with him. Right? Jesus doesn't argue with this guy, but he says to him, you're going to be with me in paradise. Truth and grace right there on display. And, and yet, Here's the unfairness of Jesus' truth and grace showing up. Earlier, he had told the rich young ruler that he had to sell everything that he owned to be able to follow Jesus. But the other guy gets grace with a minute left on the clock. Like, it doesn't make sense, but it's because Jesus was the fullness of all things all the time. And here's what's so important for us to get practically. As we try and follow Jesus, if you want to take that seriously, here's what I'd tell you today. It's that if you want to know what Jesus meant by loving one another the way that he loves us, you got to watch what Jesus did. If you want to know what he meant, then pay attention to the way that he loved. Because Jesus called sin, sin, right? Truth. And then he turned around and he paid for it. Grace. He called sin, sin, and then he paid for it. He, 
he declared to uh, the woman caught in adultery. He said, I don't condemn you. Now stop sinning. (laughs) Grace, truth, right there, hand in hand. And if she didn't do it, he still loved her. Grace. Like, like if you find yourself so broken that you don't know that you can break away, Jesus says, I love you. Right there in that moment. And that is how we've been called to love. People who hold the truth and grace in their full measure all the time, at the same time. And there is a tension there, right? There's a paradox at the heart of the whole thing. But if you resolve it, you're going to miss out on it. If you resolve it, you lose something. Because we dare not lose the truth. Because every sin has a gotcha to it, right? Every sin is a trap that will keep you from God's best in your life, and you don't want it to get you. But you dare not lose grace, because sin's already got you, and you need a way out of that. And here's my point today. Like, (laughs) the absurdity of this movement that we're in. We can get so puffed up and so arrogant about how right we are or, or the truth that we carry or whatever, or we can miss the point and we can let people go like wild and crazy. But here's one way that you could describe this movement that you're a part of. Like, do you know what you call this group of people? A group of liars and cheaters and divorced and remarried and living together and jealous and greedy and covetous and lustful, porn watching, tax dodging, law breaking, racist people who eat too much and then come together because they believe Jesus is the light of the world and they need more light. You call that the church. You call that the church, but there's only one way to make that work. Grace and truth in their full measure. The paradox in its full measure. And the church is at its best when we embrace both and we refuse to let go of either, when we are willing to live with the tension instead of trying to resolve it. Because if we resolve it, we know that we lose something, something that we all desperately need, both grace and truth in our lives. So paradoxology, it means that this stuff isn't meant to be solved. It's meant to be held. It's actually meant to create space in us to experience the mystery that is following Jesus the mystery that is God himself. And we don't try and solve faith like it's a problem, but we hold it and make space for the tensions. And when it comes to your faith, here's a question I'd ask you as we wrap up. What paradoxes do you need to make space for? What things are you trying to solve that instead you just need to carry, you need to hold? And as it relates to this one paradox at the heart of how we're called to love, what would it look like for you to model being full of grace and full of truth? Let me pray for you. God, this, uh, it's not easy stuff, right? In some ways, it's so simple. You modeled it for us. You showed us what it looks like, and we love it when we see it. I mean, this is the reason people flocked to you, and yet it can be so difficult in our world and in this cultural moment to be both full of grace and full of truth and to be willing to hold tension and hold paradox instead of trying to solve everything and make our point. But God, I pray that we could become a community that is marked by carrying the tension, that is marked by the space that we create, specifically the space that we create for other people to encounter you and your mystery. God, all of us in the room have received grace from you, and I pray that you would keep us from forgetting it. And God, all of us in the room need truth from you to live life the way that you designed life to work, and I pray that none of us miss it. So help us in the way that we live and the way that we love one another to be like you and to carry the fullness of grace and the fullness of truth in tension together wherever we lead. God, lead us uh, to know our next step in the days ahead. We pray and we ask all of that in Jesus' name.
Amen. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. If you live in or near the Peru, Indiana area, we would love for you to engage with us at one of our weekend gatherings. To find directions, service times, and information about our environments for kids, visit us at storyperu.com.